content warning. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and child abuse. What the f- oh, oh, oh. Santa's not real. Guess I'm gonna kill a bunch of people. So many Christmas boobs in this movie. What's next? Killer Easter Bunny? Yes, please. Merry fucking Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Have you been good this year, Sam? I've been naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Punish. Punish. Welcome to the Infinite Horrors Podcast. Today we're going to discuss the 80s holiday slasher classic, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Santa's watching. Santa's Santa's waiting. Everybody's (laughs) celebrating. Did you do your best this year? Too late now, because Santa's here. (laughs) Uh, for, For those of you unaware, that's an original tune written for this song, uh... Uh, it's a new holiday classic, I guess. <laughs> you know, I didn't clock that until afterwards when I was looking it up because it sounds like any other fucking Christmas song is they're all so freaking creepy. No, I know. Well, oh man. I mean, I we will absolutely be getting into the inherent creepiness of Santa Claus. <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake and and you better be good for goodness sake. Which, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it has a double meaning, right? Because it's like inherently, you should be good because it's good to be good, but also for goodness sake. Right, exactly. Because of the colloquialism. So, (laughs) Which, you know, gets into this movie a little bit too with its double meaning and verbal irony spattered around. Exactly. Which I appreciate. Yeah. But Silent Night, Deadly Night, on its nose, was meant to be just a good slasher film. And somehow they accidentally made a very astute commentary on childhood trauma. Yeah, childhood trauma. And I was seeing a lot of like criticisms of the Catholic Church. Yeah, uh, criticisms of police. Criticisms of the police, (laughs) right. All these like major institutions. Which are very clearly unintentional, but because it wasn't overstated, it was more effective. Yeah. Which is really, really funny to me. Mm -hmm. They shot over and hit something good. (laughs) Right. I hadn't seen this movie since I was, God, a teenager in my buddy Ned's basement. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) Oh, basement horror films are the best. Uh, I routinely wish I could go back to my buddy's basement and like regress to a teenager and get high and eat Cheetos and watch bad movies. (laughs) <laughs> till the sun okay came up. well i guess when i come visit you we should find a basement and just eat cheetos and watch horror that sounds perfect sick no, god that'd be great <laughs> i think the last time that i saw this was actually this movie used to run along with my bloody valentine on tv all the time oh and all the other like holiday slasher flicks mm-hmm. that would come through so it's been a while i think since either of us watched this Also, for any listeners that want to watch it this holiday season but don't have access to a physical copy, there is a site called archive.org online that has a ton of movies for free that you can just access because it's fair use. Like you can't 
redistribute it, but you can watch them for for free legally on this site. And I think it's powered mostly by the Wayback Machine Mm -hmm. or is associated with it. So you can find a lot of older movies that used to be on YouTube that got taken down. So it's a good resource for anyone listening. For sure. I I made the mistake of spending $3 to rent it on Amazon Prime. Uh, It was, you know. Also, (laughs) you don't have to give your money to Jeff Bezos if you go on to archive. (laughs) I I think back to my like LimeWire and Kazaa days and just like, uh, annihilating my my parents' computer. <laughs> well, that's very naughty, Sam. <laughs> you wouldn't download a car. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't steal food from a baby, would you? <laughs> uh, have you watched the IT Crowd? No, I no. But they have they have to. a fake anti piracy PSA mm-hmm. that just gets like more and more insane as it goes along, and it's like. You wouldn't kill a cop and then steal his helmet and then take a shit in his helmet and give it to his grieving widow and then steal it again. <laughs> That's what I think of now because it was such a funny play on those those uh, little PSAs. But Yeah, I got to say, I do not support piracy in any way. Unless it hurts Jeff Bezos or other billionaires and then I'm down for it. Sure, yeah. Um, so I think, I think a, good, a good thing to do with this episode would be to tell what it's about, right? Let's talk about how this movie starts. The first act of this movie is designed in a way to kind of set up what the psychological trauma is that the killer goes through. Okay, I know that I have gripes with exploitation in these films. And like, this is very much the case here. I don't mind nudity in films if it makes sense, but in a lot of these slasher flicks, it's always, we're trying to figure out a way to force some girls to show their boobs just for the sake of showing boobs. Oh my God, so many Christmas boobs in this movie. And it's like things that don't make sense for someone to do and is clearly there just to like take advantage of these women's bodies in this film, which is like- I don't have an issue with nudity in films. I just don't like exploitation. You Puritan. <laughs> no, it's it's like very specific. Cause like if I, I've, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, it, to me, this kind of, it feels like extra wrong because if you're going to have a scene with a rapist, you're kind of also doing the same thing as the director by purposefully exploiting this woman's body for no other reason than to show off her boobs. And it's just, yeah, I'm not equating the two. Believe me, I'm not. But it's the same idea of exploitation. No, absolutely. I mean, there's that scene later in the movie with the couple that are having sex on the pool table. Yeah. And then she and opens the, the door woman opens with her, her boobs out. It's Christmas time. I literally right? made a note that said, who the fuck answers the door in nothing but booty shorts? Your boobs are all over the place. <laughs> you don't know who's at that door. It could be your mother. <laughs> It could be literally anyone. Nobody answers the door with their boobs out. Well, have you tried it yet? No, because I purposefully cover up. I live in the desert. It's hot. I'll walk around without a shirt. But if somebody's at my door, I'm going to cover up. Of course. (laughs) It it doesn't make sense. It, It drove me crazy. That is the example that I would pull out of like very much exploitation. Yeah. It's also weird because I know the actresses are not teenagers, but it's meant to portray teen sexuality. Uh, and it's just I like, know. that makes me uncomfortable. And I hate that. Totally, totally. But anyway, sorry. Like It's kind of like, I mean, not to diverge too much. It's kind of like why 
Euphoria, that show. I mean, as I oh, I don't watch it. <laughs> obviously, I'm a host of a horror podcast, so I'm I think I'm well indoctrinated with some pretty disturbing stuff. Just to your point, these are 20 to 25 year old actresses playing 16 year olds getting hypersexualized, and it's yeah, I I it's like personally, I just I feel uncomfortable with that, you know. Likewise, I can see why it makes sense for the mother to kind of have this because it feeds into this cycle of sexual trauma. Yes. And it makes sense when he sees the couple having sex in the orphanage. Yes. But for the rest, it's just very clearly exploitative. There's a clear distinction. And this is a good way for me to build on what I was talking about in our reanimator episode and further explain when I think it works and when it doesn't. Sure. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about it. But yes, continue with Billy's horrible trauma. (laughs) It begins with Billy, who's the main character. And an interesting thing about this slasher movie compared to most other slasher movies in this era is that this movie follows the bad guy, essentially. Whether or not you think Billy is a bad guy or if he's a victim is, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into that. It's very similar to our uh, Norman Bates conversation. I see a lot of parallels to Psycho. If I were to compare it to another slasher, it would be Psycho. But also traumatized or fucked up kid going crazy is very Halloween, which was what, four years before this? 1980. Which I know people say kicked off the slasher genre, but I don't think that's entirely true. Like maybe it it spurred a little bit more action, but the slashers have been around for most of the 20th century. Yeah, I think it was just indicative of the time that people were slightly more interested in them in the 70s and 80s. But yeah, well, you know, I mean, Black Christmas, again, another movie we can do next year. That was 1974, you know, and that's a slasher movie. Well, Christmas Evil in 1982. Christmas Evil. Ooh. I haven't heard of that one. It's like pretty similar. Mm -hmm. It's about another person who gets traumatized by Santa Claus becoming a a slasher. Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) But not like because of something Santa did, just like Santa's not real. Guess I'm going to kill a bunch of people. I mean, naturally, right? When I found out Santa wasn't real, that's the first thing I thought. The synopsis describes it as a yuletide killing spree. And that is what I'm going to start categorizing all of these winter holiday crazy killer movies as, because I think that's hilarious. It just sounds so upbeat. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Well, you know, another thing about this movie, which I find pretty interesting, is that it's very, I mean, we were talking about this last night. It takes itself very seriously. It was meant to just be a slasher. So yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So we begin with Billy and his family going to visit their senile grandfather in a, is it an old person home or a psych ward? You Uh, know, I genuinely don't know because it could be either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, that's sad. I mean, they had like a million, almost a million dollar budget. Yeah. Right. Also, they did over double that within the week that they were in theaters or a week or two, which is very impressive. The movie came out, what was it, the same weekend as Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah, and outperformed it. And outperformed it. (laughs) But it didn't for a very specific and pretty shitty reason. 
which let's get to that in a bit. Okay. So they go to visit the grandpa and the grandpa's not responsive, except when the rest of the family leaves and it's just Billy and the grandpa. And the grandpa kind of sets the tone for the whole movie being like, you got to watch out for Santa. He's watching you at all times, which, you know, is really plays that uh, idea of Santa's inherent creepiness as a character this like you know it's playfully ambiguous because we don't know if he is for some reason aware of a history of people dressing up as santa and killing people and that's why he's like so serious about it or if he's just an old man who went a little bit too hard with the usual holiday rhetoric of sally be careful if you're naughty santa knows about it you know it's like because a lot of this is heavily covered in verbal and situational irony, mm. which is very effective. Again, like I love it. I've made so many notes about it while I was watching. I'm like, this is if I were teaching a class on irony, I would probably include this movie because it is very well done. Mm. It's not a stellar movie, but it has good elements to it, you know, so. Right. I went into this movie kind of expecting to really not like it because this is not really my cup of tea. Oh, yeah. No, I I didn't remember loving this movie, but I think I was also like younger and taking it at face value. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was just more having fun at watching people get murdered when I was like 13 seeing this for the first time. I also was not diagnosed with PTSD at the time I first watched this. Ah, (laughs) And like watching it now with a diagnosis of PTSD, well, technically two diagnoses of PTSD from separate events. Man, they got a lot right. And I know I talked a little bit about it when we talked about I have no mouth and I must scream. Mm -hmm. But I know when things get done correctly when they talk about PTSD because I get a little knot in my stomach. Sure. (laughs) I appreciate that as much as much as it's like uncomfortable to watch when things are done a little bit too well. When you have my kind of background, I really appreciate it. I think it's interesting. I think they do it well. Yeah. So Billy and his family go see grandpa. Meanwhile, there's this guy in a Santa costume going around town causing a ruckus and he robs this he robs this convenience store, shooting the teller behind the counter. God, also, every time he kills, they like give him a little close up of the weapon. And I think that's so funny. <laughs> I don't know why, but when you have a guy dressed as Santa and then you zoom in. So all you see is like uh, in the shot being framed is his hand in his pocket. And then it's just the one second shot of him pulling out a gun. That <laughs> makes me laugh. That's so funny. I gotta I gotta try and remember what the shot is. I think it's because it's just it's so dissonant and it feels like a oh, comedy sure. sketch of like yeah. Santa's here to take all your money. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing something different this year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving you toys, you're giving me money. <laughs> this is where it feels like B horror, right? Because mm-hmm. it feels like something you'd see presented on Mystery Science Theater 3000, where mm-hmm. You have this Tommy Wiseau direction kind of coming in where the dialogue is very weirdly delivered, but also very funny. The clerk is like about to reach for a gun. So he just gets shot and then he takes all the money and he comes in. He's like, $31. Merry fucking Christmas. And it's just like, (laughs) 
That's so <laughs> funny to me. One, like, $31 is not worth killing a man over. Not that anything is worth killing a man over, but, like, in the context of a movie villain. Right. <laughs> Usually people kill for, like, millions in these scenarios or, like, multi- a lot more. So the fact that it was, like, so casual and then also he gets disappointed by it and just casually walks away, I think the whole situation is just framed in such an over-the-top kind of matter-of-fact way. Like, the situation is so mundane, but for some reason, it's really funny. Yeah, I mean, it's Santa robbing a fucking grocery store. It's hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I really, really like the pillow stuffing that you can kind of see in the clerk's (laughs) shirt. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he's very clearly wearing something pillowy to, like, build up his frame but also provide padding for the shots yeah and to like house the blood and stuff but it's it looks really fake and it looks really funny and i think that adds to like the comedy sketch quality of it to me right maybe and that's also why i think it's really funny but you know also just dry basic over-the-top villain humor to me right but i don't find him as funny in the next scene when he just randomly Uh, hails Billy and his parents as they're driving down. And he honestly, I, I, again, great use of verbal irony here when he yells, no, don't stop. It's, I don't want to be bad. Like, don't stop for Santa. Keep going. (laughs) Because he thinks that if he sees Santa or like stays up to see Santa before Christmas, he's going to get punished for it because everybody's saying that, you know, Santa doesn't like that. You know, that's what you're told as a kid. Can't stay up late. You can't see him do what he's doing. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. You know, yeah. he won't come to your house if you stay up too late, you know, which is a well done, like realistic way for a kid to react. It, it makes sense to me. And I mm-hmm. like that because a lot of modern movies and a lot of movies in general will kind of have unrealistic behavior from children like people seem to have a really hard time writing children and like the writing in this movie is not fantastic the acting is not fantastic but when you have stuff like this where yeah it makes sense that a kid would be worried about losing presence and then freak out about it in this way i i like that that's yeah that's real yeah, writing for kids is hard also child actors are notoriously difficult <laughs> oh yeah no you know? child actors are very hard to get a good performance out of and it's not just the children but the parents themselves you know it's oh, yeah yeah though when when the kid who played billy was pretending to be scared he did a pretty decent job nice, like, I, be- I believed his fear Oh, well, there's a lot of heartbreaking moments in this scene. Oh my god, I have a I have an anecdote and I don't really care about putting this out in the world. I have an aunt who isn't the best person when it comes to kids. And at one time in, at Christmas, I was visiting my grandparents and they were over and uh, she takes care of my cousin's kids, so her grandkids. And they're like in primary school or younger. They're they're very young kids. And we'd given them their presents so that they could open them. And after opening all the presents, one of them turned to my aunt and said, are there any more presents? Because they're kids. Christmas is about presents. This makes sense. She started yelling at them, Uh. like, viciously. One of my worst, like, I'm about to get angry kind of triggers is when people are just really mean to kids. 
especially for no fucking reason. Not that there's really ever a reason to get mad at kids because kids are kids. But like, I remember like tearing into her and taking the kids to like the other room and giving them like coloring books and being like, okay, I know she's your grandmother, but adults should not be allowed to talk to you like this and like getting really defensive of them and just being like, we can just hang out and color for as long as you want. You know, just take a beat. That's what I kept thinking of a lot of this movie and just being like, oh, I want to hug these kids. I want to protect them. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, something I love about this movie is that it, it makes me think about the holidays are so routinely glossed over as this like super happy, heartwarming, nurturing time for families and such. But oh, my God, that is absolutely not the case. Yeah. For a lot I of mean, people. look at this movie with the line like, yeah, a boy should be thinking about his parents on Christmas. My parents are dead. Oh, right. exactly. <laughs> Well, it's it's just, you know, this is a movie about not everyone's Christmas is what you think it it's supposed to be, I guess. Yeah, also, well, like a deep misunderstanding of trauma. But I, I, I have a lot to say about that and like the cultural aspect of that going forward. But let's just finish setting up the movie first. Oh, sure. So they run into this Santa. They pull over because they think he needs help. And the Santa pulls a gun out, shoots the dad dead. The car crashes because the dad was at the wheel. And I think a really sad moment for me was that Billy is in the backseat of the car with his infant brother. Mm -hmm. And Billy opens the car door and, you know, he's in fight or flight mode, obviously. And to your point, the kid's a good actor. He really seems as terrified as one would expect a kid to be in this moment. Yes. He opens the door and leaves his infant brother alone in the car with his mom who's about to meet a fairly grisly fate at the hands of Santa Claus or, you know, someone dressed as Santa. Yeah. But for Billy, this person is Santa. With the right? infant brother screaming the entire time in the background. Yeah. Oh, my God. A genuinely pretty chilling scene. No, like uh, really, really properly awful. Yeah. This is a good way to set up severe childhood trauma. Yep. Nope. Good job, yeah, guys. <laughs> Which is weird because I'm pretty sure that the majority of people who worked on this this was their only movie, maybe like the sequel and then like a couple of other movies. But like they did not have long careers, which is surprising to me because I think there were decent aspects to this movie, like enough to give them a pretty solid foundation. But like the writer for the screenplay only worked on this movie and the sequel. And I couldn't really find a lot of work from the director either. Uh, Charles E. Sellier Jr. Yeah. As a director, he did Silent Night, Deadly Night, Snowballing the same year, which I don't even know if you could find a copy of that. Well, he, it seems like he went from directing to producing pretty fast. Yeah, it looks like it. A lot of religious movies too, oddly enough. Like he did In Search of Noah's Ark, The Greatest Heroes of the Bible. It's really it's so <laughs> weird. Yeah, I know. The guy's, the guy's got a curious... Uh, that's, that's like extra weird given this movie. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's really played both sides. Did of the, the protesters uh, kidnap him and brainwash him? Ooh. Somebody make a movie about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy is witness to this horrible crime. His parents are murdered right in front of him. Oh, I'm sorry. We completely glossed over what happens to the mother which an effective use of sexual violence yeah which actually 
I have an interesting tidbit. This might actually be a good time for me to get into something I wanted to talk about, which is psychological academics of the time. We all know that psychology and social sciences were not the best in the 20th century and earlier than that as well, but specifically talking about the 20th century. We know that homosexuality was classified as a mental illness for years and years, and that was not corrected until the 80s. And then even then, it was still a hysteria or an ego issue around homosexuality. And then that didn't get changed until much later. Right. But an interesting thing here is a lot of PTSD research wasn't triggered by soldiers with PTSD from World War II. There was a little bit of that, Mm. but there was a lot of progress made from sexual assault victims. Oh, okay. And a lot of the first treatments were for sexual assault victims, which is really interesting because I would have expected it to be war veterans. Yeah, right. Like shell shock in World War I. Well, the solution back in World War I was to shoot them. It was seen as a dereliction of duty and you were a coward and a yellow belly and a traitor which is just so wrong and horrible. There was something called the 1970s crisis in psychology where if I remember correctly, it was kind of like a restructuring of how psychology was thought of academically. And it marks a transition period from experimental psychology to more social and theory aspects of psychology, which is interesting. And this came with a lot of overhauls to the manual that outlines psychological issues. But in 1974, that was actually the first time that a psychological paper in the academic realm labeled rape as a violent act and not a sexual act, which I thought was interesting. One with the rise in sexploitation in films, especially around slashers, because, you know, that kind of blurs that line in public thinking a little bit of fantasy and violent thoughts. Cause you know, a lot of those are made in a way that it's specifically framed to like make people want to see somebody's body. So that's mm-hmm. a little bit more of the fantasy aspect, despite the tone and the actual content. So again, getting into why I don't really like those types of exploitations, but at the same time, we're, in a violent movie. So I I always think that's interesting. I'm obviously reading too much into this, but like I do think that it has interesting sort of implications for how we think about these things. But also going forward, this movie came out close to the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War was a really big push into treating soldiers for PTSD. So between right. the sexual revolution and feminism adding to better academic studies of sexual assault victims and then how we talk about them and also get rid of the underlying sexism of psychology in the 70s and then the Vietnam War, we see the 80s kind of be a really big change in psychology and we start seeing PTSD being talked about more in psychological academic circles. Mm. And It was post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder were not part of the American diagnostic criteria until they were first included in DSM-3 in 1980, which is right about this movie. And think about all those poor, untreated people up until then. You know, that brings us to the second part of this movie. And the reason I wanted to look into this is because I was like, if he's growing up in the 70s and the movie 
directly talks about that. And nobody is being empathetic and understanding and helpful around this kid's very obvious PTSD. Like, I wanted to look up what the cultural aspect of that was. Sure. And this fits. You know, nobody really understood P- PTSD and wrote it off as hysteria. Mm-hmm. PTSD aspects were treated in parts. So it'd be like, they take your response and then label you as having some sort of mental issue because you were responding to trauma and that was your problem. So that was the kind of way things were done up until the 80s when things started to be rethought about as like a larger issue of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I I think that this is an example of this movie being accidentally very good commentary. (laughs) Yeah, right. The the writer and director probably didn't know how on the nose they were being, how accurate they were about their representation of trauma. What's sad for Billy, right, is that his already pretty traumatic childhood is exacerbated because after he's orphaned because Santa murdered his parents, um, he's sent to a Catholic orphanage. Which is the true horror because being forced to be in an institution that does not let you separate church and state in your learning is clearly awful. Uh, This is a joke, but, you know, (laughs) the the true horror, but also not really in this movie. (laughs) I mean, this was back in the 80s where like, you know, I think Catholic schools have, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to overgeneralize here, but I feel like nowadays Catholic schools have done a better job at sort of rectifying the corporal punishment elements of their institutions. You know, you talk to people in the generation above us and the before that who go to Catholic school and all of them, I feel, have stories of mother superiors who like wrap their knuckles with rulers or really punished you in in like traumatic physically violent not helpful ways i mean the the christians were also the ones kidnapping indigenous children and putting them in residential quote-unquote schools and then precisely you know causing mass death and punishment and slavery of indigenous children and removing them from their cultural heritage (laughs) and creating like generational losses of knowledge and nations. The Catholic Church has a fair amount to think about, (laughs) about the effect they've had on society in modern times. It may be a dated institution, but that's not for me to decide, I suppose. I didn't grow up a Catholic, so I personally have a bit of trouble being too critical on that specific denomination. Because, I don't know, there's some great art that came out of the Catholic Church, I guess. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I try and find a silver lining in everything, but it's hard for me with that particular institution. And this and this movie really fucking doubles down on that idea, right? Because he goes there ostensibly for shelter, and it, it just... And it is very clearly shown that all of the nuns are aware of exactly what happened that night. Right. And yet they continuously and purposefully and consciously force him into scenarios that will trigger his PTSD and all of the effects. They have a Santa come to the orphanage so the kids can sit on his lap and he's, you know, 
screaming and yelling and finally sits on his lap. And, you know, this is some B-movie horror goodness here where he like socks Santa in the mouth and this like eight-year-old boy sends Santa flying across the fucking room. (laughs) Even though like none of this is his fault. And they're forcing these triggers to happen. Exactly. Like, sit on your murderer's lap, you know? Which is why the true killer is Mother Superior, because she's the reason that all of this is happening. Uh, You know, we're going to get into this conversation again. (laughs) Like, I don't... God, what was I? I was watching this documentary recently about Gypsy and Dee Dee Blanchard. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar? Right? Yeah. And I had this conversation with my twin sister is like, how much can you blame Gypsy for what happened? Well, first of all, I just want to say that sympathy for somebody suffering greatly from mental illness and sympathy for somebody who has been killed are not mutually exclusive things. You can have both. Very true. And I think people forget that often. Sure. So when I express sympathy for these characters, I am not condoning murder as an option for dealing with trauma but in this case it's a little different right like there is a clear dissociation that happens with billy as we go through this movie to the point where that is not billy anymore he is not there this is a a dissociative episode in which he kills because his trauma compiled with his childhood trauma and the fact that that he is being physically forced into these triggers. Mm -hmm. I can't fault him for anything. So, So Billy eventually, right, he grows up and he leaves the orphanage and he's like super ripped and super handsome and he gets his first job at a toy store, of course. And uh, With the creepiest manager. Oh man, Mr. Sims. There's this very interesting scene where Mr. Sims is like, why should I hire you? And then it does a slow pan up Billy's body and he's got all these like hard muscles and he's really handsome. And Mr. Sims is like, oh, yes. Yeah, it has the implication that Mr. Sims really wants to fuck this 18 year old boy and it's uncomfortable and I don't like it. Like this also plays into this larger theme here. You know how in slashers we have this trope of sex being punished? Yes. Right? One This is kind of echoed in terms of Catholic and puritanical ideals with Mother Superior punishing the kids having sex in the orphanage and whatever, like 18-year-old kids, right? Right. Teenagers. Teenagers are going to be teenagers. Right. Adult actors playing children. There's this whole parallel between this puritanical or very conservative Christian thought of sex is a sin, it should be punished, and slashers doing the exact same thing. But also, there is a real secondary layer here that I think is great. And it's this idea that Billy, when he saw his mother about to be raped and killed by Santa, developed a very strong sexual trauma that wasn't the result of him being sexually assaulted, but witnessing something so vile during a stage in his development that would influence his sexuality a little bit. Right. Where every time he sees anything in a sexual context, that's a trigger for his memory of his mother being raped and killed, which then influences how he thinks about sex, right? Mm -hmm. Especially like when Pamela, the girl he likes, is about to be raped by their co-worker. That's another trigger, right? Like, so I think 
that aspect of sexual trauma creating a dissociation in the killer and causing them to kill when people are having sex is kind of an inadvertent and accidental second layer that the writers and director added to this. Because I know none of this was on purpose, the way this was set up and written. If you like to overanalyze things and pick up on way too much subtext here, cool little second layer that still works and adds a lot to Billy's character. Absolutely. But the only thing that I want to add is that I think it's really funny that Billy's memory has multiple camera shots. Mm. Whenever we get a PTSD flashback that's meant to be his point of view, we get multiple third-person camera shots. God, it's almost like if you were to look at it from a bird's-eye view, it's like Billy running around the scene looking at <laughs> Well, it's like, <laughs> it's like the it. zoom in on his dad's face and stuff from an angle he clearly could not see. <laughs> things like that like it's i i understand that you're just reusing footage and stuff but it's like little things that make this more of a cult classic b horror energy than you know something carefully crafted right and on that note the slashery kind of set pc kills in this movie are really good from the scene in the toy store where billy kills pamela as well as uh his co-worker bill um What's his co-worker's name? I don't remember because he was so much of a dick. I just didn't care to remember. He sucked. That's the thing. I was so glad when he got killed. Yeah. So the so first, happy. the very first kill when he's defending Pamela from being raped, I was like, oh, maybe he's just going to be like a vengeance driven killer. Yeah, kind of like vigilante Santa. Yeah. Like the crow, you know? <laughs> Uh, same same idea killers driven by like vengeance but like yeah really i really don't understand why he killed pamela and i also don't understand pamela's reaction to being saved from being raped oh man yeah she's like you creep and it's like wait what (laughs) yeah i just hung with okay so he hangs the co-worker the rapist co-worker with christmas lights and he's very strong Well, he like strangles him more than he hangs him. But he has the dude like a foot off the ground. He goes full Robocop. (laughs) A a total Robocop moment. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And and this is when he introduces his like, you know, before he kills all these people, he'll say, naughty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Punishment is good because that's what. Mother Superior told him repeatedly when he was crying during his traumatic dissociations. Right. His manager is forcing him to dress as Santa and be Santa. And he, having only really the experience of having severe trauma that is only compounded and never addressed, mixed with Mother Superior physically beating him, tying him to a bed like you know, the way that the Catholic Church has killed children during exorcisms naturally, uh, and other things, and then like chastising him for crying, for being traumatized and acting out because of fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when you force him to take on the persona of the thing that killed his parents, yeah. he's going to have a dissociative episode yeah. and go a little crazy because now he thinks that he is this decider of judgment yeah this moral arbiter of are you naughty or nice and because his experience is that santa kills naughty people if you are being naughty by the definitions of the morals set by the catholic orphanage that he grew up in then you must die 
And so he uh, he goes around town at this point, much in a Michael Myers way, you know, kind of like bopping around from house to house, killing people. And some of these set pieces are pretty good. We mentioned the couple before that are having sex on the pool table. The guy has some yeah. horrible pickup line, like two balls. In the oh corner, my God, two balls in the corner pocket, which is just... He deserves to die for that. That is the most disgusting fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> two balls in one pocket. <laughs> Fuck off. I hate I'm you. so glad Please, he gets it. I, I want yes. you to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then that poor girl answers the door without her shirt on. And then what even drives him to this house? And again, who answers the door like this? You like barely cared about covering up for the child you're babysitting to. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. But also, I want to talk a little bit about the sound design sure. while we're here in this part of the movie, because they tried. They tried a little bit. They, they got like 50% of the way to a really cool idea. So Billy's costume in Santa has jingle bells on the cuffs mm-hmm. of his jacket. And when he's around, but you can't see him, you hear it in the background. You hear right. the jingle bells. The only thing that I'm, I'm annoyed about and why I say it's 50% of the way to being a good idea is the fact that we know that after we hear the jingle bells, a cat with a jingle bell collar is around. So I would have liked to see a shot setting up the cat and the cat sounds of the collar jingling, because then when we hear the sound of Billy's jingle bells, we would just automatically think, oh, it's the cat without the need for the very clear exposition of, oh, I heard the cat getting at the door. You know, <laughs> it would be it would be a lot more effective and a little bit more blended into the background to make it more effective. And then also in the sleigh ride killing, I when they do it again, I would have liked instead for the sleighs to have jingle bells on them so yes. that when they're being moved around, we already hear that. And then when we hear... Billy's jingle bells in the distance that also gets glossed over by our brains. And that would be also really effective. But then also I really, really, really like the original score for this mm-hmm. of all of this tension building music written by a composer named Perry Botkin Jr. Who actually won a Grammy for some of his work and did a lot of TV themes. He wrote the Mork and Mindy theme. Oh, wow. Isn't that so funny? He yeah. also wrote the theme for Quark. I don't know if you ever watched Quark. It was no, kind of I like did not a watch Star Quark. Trek TOS ripoff mm-hmm. or, or parody, I should say. But he also wrote the TV theme for Adam's Rib. So he did okay. like kind of cool work. Apparently, he sat down with a Betamax version of this film and improvised all of this music over it. But the reason I like it is because it very much reminds me of like 90s PC horror mm. of like the discordant staccato chords yeah that like pop up and i wrote down the ones that i w- i could think of that this specifically reminds me of so if anyone's watching you guys can tell me if you agree or not alone in the dark and the main reason it reminds me of this is because i'm currently replaying it mm-hmm. but nimdok's background music and oh. i have no mouth and i must scream really I got a lot of vibes that oh. were similar. The XCOM Terror from the Deep okay. kind of music and the Clock Tower a little bit. Very cool. Okay, I'll, Those I'll, were kind of the vibes I got. The Nimdok thing rings a bell because that's honestly the only one I'm familiar with on that list, but totally right. The, but it's the, like this very heavily electronic, synthy, dissonant, chord. dissonant yeah. sounds. Yeah. Love it. And I very love that because when I was a kid, 
or younger, I guess, because I, I, I was like kind of in my teens when I started getting into video games because I didn't grow up with them. Mm-hmm. And I would go over to like friends' houses and play them. There's something I think a little bit visceral for me of being in a tense situation of the music changing of like, dun, 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 like those heavy, oh no, you're about to get killed. You need to run right. kind of vibe. Yeah. So when I hear it, I'm like, oh, I love it. It might be a little bit of a bias. of I feel more tension because because of that, but I get really excited. <laughs> I mean, the music's good. When I watched this movie for the second time, the music didn't stick out to me, but you mentioning that is ringing a bell and making me appreciate it a little bit more. Well, it's not like a fully scored movie or anything. Yeah. You know, even the original Christmas music that's in there, because they also put in a lot of normal Christmas music that, you know, is a little bit darker when you think about it. But the original Christmas music first comes on a little bit before they die Mm -hmm. in the first kill. And they turn on the radio and then like two seconds of the original Christmas music song plays and then it just stops playing, but the radio never turned off, which is really funny to me. I love little like blips like that. It's so funny. Right. An interesting little bit. We all know the iconic cover art and uh, poster art of Santa holding a bloody axe in a chimney. Uh, that was all done by a graphic designer named Bert Klieger. So I just want to make sure that we get his name out there because that's yeah. some iconic imagery. It looks great. Way to go, Bert. It's a great poster for sure. Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral, the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. This movie is apparently based off of a book named Slay Ride, S-L-A-Y-R-I-D-E. Ha ha ha, very funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was originally supposed to be titled that before they changed it to Silent Night, Deadly Night. And I could not find this book. I don't know why. I've never seen a book that I cannot find. And this is nowhere to be found. Yeah, I did a a good search on my own and it's just, uh, you know, lost... To time, lost to history. I I wonder how that book reads. If anyone out there knows of how we can find a copy of this book, please let us know. Definitely. Something that I'd really like to get into about this movie isn't necessarily the movie itself, but kind of the release and the hubbub it caused amongst the Christian audience. When this movie was released, it was released the same weekend, as we mentioned before, as uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And outperformed that movie for the week that it was in theaters. Now, it was only in theaters for a very short time. The problem was the Christian right had a big issue with the filmmakers depicting Santa as a murderer, which I would say, you know, if you just watch the fucking movie, it's not Santa. Also, 
who's bringing their child to this? I, I will say my my mom took me to a lot of horror movies when I was probably not old enough. Yeah, but she wouldn't be the one protesting. No, absolutely it's not like not. they're going to let their she, kids watch this. She would support a movie like this. <laughs> my mom took me to see The Sixth Sense when I was like eight years old, and it was a very life-changing moment for me. I love that movie. That doesn't have every, anything like too bad in it, though. It has a kid turning around, and he's like, the back of his skull is gone. Yeah, but it's not like anything that... I would say is overly traumatizing for a child because like it's all done in a way that it's also not a sexploitation film. So I like that's my main gripe with keeping kids from movies. Right. So sure. I see what you mean. This movie was picketed, protested top to bottom, both by the audiences and some pretty prominent critics. Who note did not have an issue with the way that the Christian orphanage and the nuns were depicted. No, no. Exactly. (laughs) That's the thing, right? They didn't care about Mother Superior beating their kids because they're like, oh, well, that's what Mother Superiors do. <laughs> they're there to raise our kids to be proper little, you know, angels. Yeah, right? you know, you know how Christian parents will teach their children to trust and obey strangers like Santa or Catholic priests who have the ability to harm them, but they're told to trust blindly. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Very famously, Siskel and Ebert. And Mickey Rooney. And Mickey Rooney. Fairly prominent figures spoke out against this movie. Siskel and Ebert read out every producer's name and then ended their review with, shame on you. I actually have pulled up some really uh, good letters that parents wrote the producers. Oh, please, please read (laughs) some. this movie. For you listening out there and you want to go buy this movie, which, you know, God bless you, you don't have to. (laughs) Including the Blu-ray are some of these letters that were written to the production team. This is Thomas O'Connor, the former mayor of Norwalk, Connecticut. I'm not one for censorship. I believe in free speech, free expression. But Christmas is sacred. To make one of these killer movies with Christmas and Santa Claus as the theme, that's going too far. Yet nobody had an issue around the Hanukkah slasher that came out. No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Or the, you know, like, when was the last time you saw Jesus hanging on a cross, right? He's skinny and ripped and bleeding and suffering and and somehow and children are being told to eat his body and blood, eat his body, drink his <laughs> blood. But God damn it. Don't see a movie about a kid dressed as Santa stabbing people. Please beat your children instead. <laughs> Here's another one from Jim Vaca, protest organizer, New York, New York. The film portends something extremely violent, something terroristic about Christmas. It's an intrusion against something we all hold sacred. Well, not all of us, sir, but <laughs> some also, of us, maybe. Why, why are you so intent on sanctifying Santa Claus? You are a grown man. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one from Denise Giordano, a concerned parent from New York, New York. There aren't too many symbols left for kids. Santa is a peace-giving symbol, and he's being destroyed. They're turning him into a homicidal maniac. (laughs) I mean, this man also 
gives children coal and yeah. like has every child under American gov- government levels of surveillance. Something that Santa touches on that Catholic guilt, you know, like <laughs> be good or else. How traumatizing is that? That's why Billy is always yelling, don't punish me. <laughs> I don't want to be naughty. I promise I'm not being naughty. And then curls up in a ball and cries. <laughs> I've, I have one more very good letter. <laughs> Paige Hurley, concerned parent, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. My three-year-old son saw the television commercial for Silent Night, Deadly Night last week and now refuses to sit on Santa's lap for our annual Christmas picture this year. How dare producer Ira Barmach rob my child and others like him of their fantasy? What next? A marauding turkey at Thanksgiving? Yes, please. Or Killer Easter Bunny was also one that people were like, like, what's next? Killer Easter Bunny? Yes, please. And, you know, we live in an era where we have Winnie the Pooh going on a homicidal spree. So As, as he should. As he should. No, I'm, fo- I'm all for it. was a bastard. I would say that considering this was airing in places kids could see it, I do think that having an image of Santa killing people on TV as an ad might have been a bad choice. Yeah. I am in the camp that, like, you should shield young children from this stuff, but... Sure, sure. You know, it should have been a little bit either more targeted and less open-ended or like a little bit more cryptic and just kind of ever say that it's like a slasher. Don't really show anything that would be burned into a child's young brain. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's a fictional character. They can get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. That last letter I think is a little bit more justified than the others. Also a lot of, again, verbal irony. uh, When I, I have like a lot of quotes from the movie written down that showcase verbal irony. And one of my favorites is when he dresses up as Santa and then Mr. Sims goes, try not to scare the little bastards. And then he immediately has a flashback to Santa going, come out, you little bastard. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's, it's good use of situational and verbal irony. I really appreciate a lot of that. Definitely. Also, my favorite insult from this movie is Moon Goon. Moon Goon. I love that. What are you, a Moon Goon? (laughs) I'm going to start using that regularly. I'll try and bring it back. That's a good one. Other very on-the-nose verbal irony, or I guess situational irony in this case more than verbal, is by the time this party's over, you'll think you are Santa Claus. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Another good one is, you remember what Santa Claus does on Christmas Eve, don't you? better get started (laughs) like very much setting up this like mental programming for his dissociative episode right another unintentional consequence of what they've written is an allegory for the cycles of trauma and how trauma continues through generations Hmm. because we see billy grow up with it and have it reinforced and then later he starts pushing his trauma onto new generations of children and then obviously very much literally in the sense that his younger brother is now the star of our sequel. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The ending of the movie has the younger brother look at Mother Superior and say, naughty. <laughs> Which is just yeah. so fucking good. One, well, one she thing, was. So. One thing I appreciate about this movie, too, is that the two real villains of this story, 
the original Santa Claus that killed Billy's parents, yeah. the mother superior, they both get away with it. That original Santa Claus, like after he kills Billy's parents, there's no mention of was he arrested? Was he executed? He just disappears as if he got away with it. And then Mother Superior, too. Well, you know, child abuse in the Catholic institutions are not the best policed, you know? It's, no, no, no. no. <laughs> it's That's pretty realistic. Right. Also, I do want to give points to the idiot boyfriend with the worst one-liners, because this is one of the few times we see a teenage victim do something that's smart and makes sense. <laughs> And is not a bad decision when he, one, fights back. Yes. And then seemingly thinks that he has disengaged Billy from, you know, being a threat. And then immediately goes and calls the cops. Right. Fantastic. Right. Good job. Exactly. You don't (laughs) see that kind of logic too often in movies like this, you know? And I appreciate that you could still have it and it not pay off. And I also appreciate... That even though they allowed the boyfriend to put his shirt back on, they made him take it off again before he gets killed. I at (laughs) least appreciate that that part of the sexploitation is a little bit uh, egalitarian. (laughs) I'll I'll give him points. Right. There's another really good quote that I forgot about until just now. Yes. And it's during the bullying scene, which feels like a bad PSA that Uh you would see in middle school. At one point... (laughs) One of the boys turns to the other one and goes, are you having a a religious experience? Are you peeing your pants? (laughs) (laughs) Which feels like a dig at the audience, if I'm being honest. (laughs) (laughs) If this movie came out today or like 1984 had TikTok, we would have absolutely seen the equivalent of the killer clown prank trend, but with killer Santas. Ooh, I didn't know this. What What is this killer clown prank trend? Oh, like a few years ago, back in like Vine days, there was like a bunch of people dressing up as killer clowns and just kind of like walking around and oh, like- I heard that. Being yeah, I, I did hear that. But then there were a lot of fake like quote unquote encounters where like people would pretend to be chased by them and stuff. I don't really fully understand it, but it this- is amusing to like think about like this happening in the 1980s. Yeah, let's let's talk about the the police profiling nod in this movie. Oh yeah. At a certain point, the cops are put on notice that there's a man dressed as Santa going around killing people. So the cops spread out and obviously around Christmas time, illegally enter a home yeah, and right. kick down the door, don't announce anything, guns blazing and almost shoot a father in front of his daughter. <laughs> Right. They they nearly shoot a dad in front of the kid. And then later, outside the orphanage, they see a man dressed as Santa approaching it. And they assume it must be Billy. And they just unload on the orphanage's priest, Father O'Brien. Which is very realistic <laughs> cop behavior. Totally. Though, you know, these are white men. So if they were if they were black men, they wouldn't even get a verbal uh <laughs> warning <laughs> they, give, they give the verbal warning and the santa doesn't respond and it's later explained that father o'brien was deaf that's why he didn't hear the warnings this is very true about how cops act and then it's like talked about like it's no big deal and like nothing bad happens to those cops no nothing which you know another kill that i'm on billy's side is uh he kills one of those cops with an axe <laughs> Yes, he does in a very like 
it's very like The Shining, you know? I love it. It's Jack Torrance killing the chef at the Overlook. I don't know if it was like a nod to The Shining. I'm not sure. Well, but it's, you know, it's very, I'm pretty sure so. Hannibal also ripped off the deer antler kill from this movie, oh. which is a dope kill. I will say that the methods of killing here are awesome from like the bow and arrow in the toy store like, to the like decapitation. Right, bow and arrow at the toy store. It's yeah. the seventies. Oh, you're right. They sold like <laughs> actual like <laughs> I mean, the Christmas story took place in the fifty with the BB gun. You know, like right, I'm not yeah. that surprised. Fair enough. I know that the director really hated gore, so this is not a gory movie, and a lot of the even gorier aspects were cut and then kept badly so that they couldn't be restored when people tried to make an uncut version. Mm-hmm. But like the the decapitated head from the sled, I really loved that with like the, the very classic trope of like the head rolling from the darkness and then the very funny reaction from the friend where he bends his knees inward, slightly drops down grabs his head and yells oh no multiple times like oh no oh god which is like really funny uh i was cracking up um but then the antler mount like lifting up this girl again very robocop style and then mounting her onto a pair of hanging antlers yeah so good yeah it looks great it's it's a good kill that's like like you know we mentioned earlier it's a movie that's got some pretty redeeming qualities here and there. These were people who clearly set out to make a good slasher and thought about it, mm-hmm. but then were a little bit too weak on the gore. Right. But yeah, you know, in the realm of Christmas horror movies that I've seen, I'd say this is pretty middle of the road. You know, it's not it's not my least favorite. It's not my favorite. It's somewhere right in the middle. I don't know. I enjoyed this one. I do want to note that one of my favorite camera shots is when the cop gets killed and he's falling backwards and we get a first person view of that, of him falling backwards from the door. Right. Down the stairs or whatever. That is fun. You know, a fun movie. And they made a few sequels to this. Yeah, but the only one that was like in the realm of like what this movie sets up is number two. Right. Because it's called Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. Right. Yeah. Like a continuation of the first story. The other movies are Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The The Toy Maker, maker. with Mickey Rooney playing the bad guy. (laughs) After After calling the producers scum that should be run out of town. Wow. And then, yeah, and they made a loose remake of the movie in 2012. Uh, Wait, did they? Malcolm McDowell, actually. Uh, Are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm not. It's just called Silent Night. It was made in 2012, directed by Stephen C. Miller. And yeah, Malcolm McDowell's in that fucking movie. Maybe we need to watch this one and do an episode on this one. Silent Night, the the more recent one. I mean, yeah. sure, I'm down. That's so funny. I know. Malcolm McDowell, what are you doing? <laughs> oh. I mean, to be fair, I think he kind of got typecast after Clockwork Orange. Yes, he plays a great villain. He's great in Caligula. He's great. In- oh, it looks like he plays the sheriff, though, not the... not um. Not Santa. No, no, no. But he, I think he is the, I think he's top billing, right? Yeah, he is. Well, clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, this was a ton of fun. Exactly. Happy holidays to our listeners. 
Watch out. <laughs> Remember, you got to be good because Santa's watching. Santa's <laughs> creeping. Now you're nodding. Now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. <laughs> happy holidays, y'all. Maya, happy holidays. Andrew, happy holidays. producer, happy holidays. <laughs> and Winston. And to all of you, have a great Saturnalia or whatever you like to do. <laughs> Yuletide, Joy, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, everything. Have fun. Nothing. Enjoy the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit infinitehorrorsmagazine.com or infiniteworldsmagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at horrorsamw. Thanks for listening.